Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Wisdom from Above, where we go beyond the reasoning of man to the revelation of God. This wisdom from above is found in the Bible, which is the only book that is truly breathed out by God. My name is Dr. Harlan Betts, and this eighth season of Wisdom from Above is taking an in-depth look at the book of Revelation. Today's episode is based on Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 17. I've titled it, The Great Red Dragon. An officer, who had been overseas 16 months, received a letter from his wife, in which she shared the prayer their four-year-old daughter had prayed. It went like this. Dear Jesus, Please send me a baby brother so we will have something to surprise Daddy with when he comes home. (laughs) Now, I'm sure that would be a surprise. As we study our way through the last book of the Bible, we've discovered a few surprises. But one thing should not be surprising, and that is anti-Semitism. Is anti-Semitism a thing of the past? Absolutely not. Let me take a few minutes to review some often overlooked facts with you. The Holy Land has belonged to the Jews for over 3,000 years. Ever since God promised this land to Abraham, then to Isaac, and then to Israel. One of the saddest and most cruel stories our history books record is the irrational hatred and persecution of the Jewish people. Three times they were captors in other lands. Three times they miraculously survived incomparable persecutions in foreign lands. Three times they miraculously returned to their God-given homeland. Each time, against such unbelievable opposition that the world watched in awe. The first time they were captives in Egypt and came back across the Red Sea and across the Jordan River to their homeland. The second time they were captives in Babylon and they came back in three waves to the Promised Land. During their third period being scattered among the nations from A.D. 70 to 1948, the flames of anti-Semitism rose to a furor. The great movie, Fiddler on the Roof, showed the tragedy of this persecution which has happened over and over in place after place across the face of this planet. The award-winning movie Schindler's List was perhaps an even more powerful presentation of the person of persecution of the Jews by the Nazis. When the British received their League of Nations mandate over the Holy Land in 1920, they were told to implement the 1917 Balfour Declaration that called for the establishment of a national homeland for the Jewish people on an area that encompassed all of Jordan, including Judea, 
and Samaria and the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and the Golan Heights. However, instead of following the Balfour Declaration, 77% of that territory was given to people other than the Jews. The Transjordan area was given to the Arabs to form what is now called Jordan. The Golan Heights was given to the French, who ruled in Syria. In 1947, the UN passed Resolution 181, which partitioned the remaining 23% of the territory into two parts, one for the Arabs and one for the Jews. The Jews were, at that point, cut down to only 13% of the territory designated to them in the Balfour Declaration. The Jews accepted the proposal, their independence in 1948, and expressed a desire to live in peace with their Arab neighbors. The Arabs, however, did not feel the same way. They were not content to have 87% of the British Mandate Palestine that was supposed to be a Jewish homeland. They wanted it all. Their goal was to destroy Israel and to drive the Jewish people into the sea. The flames of anti-Semitism continued to spread. The Palestinian Islamic Jihad, founded in 1979, the Hamas, founded in 1987, and the Hezbollah, formed in 1982, are all on the United States State Department's list of foreign terrorist organizations. All three of them have as their goal the destruction of Israel and the eradication of the Jews. In 1970, the Washington Post carried this quote of Yasser Arafat. Quote, the goal of our struggle is the end of Israel, and there can be no compromise. End of quote. The Palestinian Liberation Organization Charter asserts the Palestinian Arab ownership of the entire Holy Land and declares the PLO's goal is to, quote, liquidate the Zionist presence in Palestine. End of quote. It states that, quote, armed struggle is the only way of liberating Palestine, end of quote. Over and over, Israel has complied with land for peace proposals. And over and over, the PLO has taken the land and failed to fulfill their commitments for peace. Amazingly, many in our world still accuse the Jews of occupying Palestinian territory. Many are blaming Israel for responding to terrorism and even claim that Israel is the aggressor. Many are associating Zionism with Nazism and even claiming there never was a Holocaust 
and an extermination of the Jews by the Nazis. Can you believe it? How people have obliterated and ignored and canceled history? Why have so many people persecuted the Jews? Why are there such strong anti-Semitic feelings among so many peoples? Well, this chapter makes the answer clear. This chapter shows that anyone who hates and persecutes a Jew is actually doing so at the instigation of the great red dragon. Antisemitism has yet to reach its most feverish pitch. The last three and a half years of the tribulation will see the climax of antisemitism. There are seven major figures in this coming true life story. Five of the seven major figures are highlighted in Revelation chapter 12. We look first at Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And it will be important for us to try to identify the characters that are being described in these passages. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So the first figure is the radiant woman. Who is this radiant woman? Well, one view is that the radiant woman is Mary. But I would say the answer to that is no. Mary was not in hiding for 1260 days. And Mary will not be here during the tribulation. And clearly, these verses are talking about the tribulation. It's made even more evident in verses 6 and 17. The second view, the radiant woman is the church. But again, the answer is no. The church didn't give birth to Christ. Christ gave birth to the church. And secondly, the church will not be here during the tribulation. This brings us to view three. The radiant woman is Israel. And the answer would be yes. The proof? Well, first, God is called the husband of Israel in Isaiah 54, 5. Second, Israel is called the wife of God in Jeremiah 3, 6 to 10. Third, Jesus is the child of God, Psalm 2, 7. Fourth, Jesus is the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Fifth, Jesus is the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, Isaiah 54, 5. Sixth, This sign is an allusion to Joseph's dream in Genesis 37. The sun was Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. The moon was Rachel. And the stars were the twelve tribes of Israel. The radiant woman's travail pictures Israel's travail. Under the enslavement of Egypt's bondage, under the destruction of Babylon's captivity, under the iron fist of Rome's oppression, under the insanity of Herod's paranoia, There are four representative women in the book of Revelation. Jezebel, in 2.20, represents a false religious system. The radiant woman, in 12.1, represents Israel. 
The harlot in chapter 17 represents the apostate church. And the bride in chapter 19 represents the true church. So we have the radiant woman who is Israel. Second, the red dragon in verses 3 and 4. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Who is this great red dragon? Revelation is designed to clarify, not to mystify. Remember the bronze rule of Bible study, contextual clarification. A text out of context is a pretext. So what do we find in the context? Well, in verse 9 we read, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. The great red dragon is Satan. He's great, bold, monstrous. He's red, bloody, murderous. He's a dragon, beastly and vicious. He has seven heads and ten horns. Well, what does this mean? Well, we have the silver rule of a Bible interpretation. Correlation, clarification. Scripture is its own interpreter. And we see a striking similarity between the great red dragon and the Antichrist as predicted in Daniel 7-8. Because the Antichrist leads the revived Roman Empire in the tribulation period. That empire is composed of seven kingdoms that willingly followed the little horn and three more kingdoms that were subdued by the little horn, creating a total of ten kingdoms. And that's what we see pictured here. This idea of uh, Satan having ten horns Seven diadems on his head. Seven crowned him willingly. His ten horns ruled ten countries. The Antichrist will be Satan's human representative on earth. And verse 4 says, Satan's tail drew a third of the stars. Stars are often representative of angels, as we see in chapter 9, verse 1, and Job 38, verse 7. One third of the angels followed Satan in his rebellion against God. We read about that in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Those fallen angels are referred to as demons. And Satan tried to destroy the Messianic line. We read about that, that he was waiting with his dominions, the demons, to devour the child as soon as it was born. Satan tried to destroy Christ through Herod by trying to kill Christ with the babies in Bethlehem. Then Satan tried to destroy Christ through the religious leaders by trying to murder Christ in Nazareth. Then Satan tried to destroy Christ through the people who cried for the crucifixion of Christ at Calvary. And Israel's child, Jesus the Messiah, was not destroyed at his birth, nor during his life, nor really even at his crucifixion, because, in fact, Christ defeated Satan through the crucifixion, as proved by his resurrection and his ascension. And then we have the regal king in verses 5 and 6. And she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And his child was caught up to God and to his throne. 
Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so that they should feed her there 1,260 days. View one is that the regal king is the church, but this cannot be. The church does not rule with a rod of iron. The church is not a male child. The church is the feminine bride. But the second view is that the regal king is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is the correct view. He is the male child. Isaiah seven fourteen predicts that a virgin will give birth to a son. Isaiah 9 predicts that a child is given unto us, a son is given to us, and he shall be called the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. And secondly, God's Son will rule with a rod of iron, Psalm 2. Thirdly, Jesus will rule with a rod of iron, Revelation 19. And fourthly, Jesus did ascend up to his throne. After his resurrection, he ascended back up to heaven. Verse 6, Satan, having failed to destroy Christ, turns to plan B and tries to destroy Israel. There's a large gap of time between 5 and 6, which is not at all uncommon in prophecy. The Antichrist sets himself up as God in the middle of the tribulation. This is known as the abomination of desolation. And at that moment, Israel is forced to flee for her life into the wilderness because the treaty has been broken and persecution is brazen. Israel experiences the great tribulation known as the time of Jacob's trouble for the last three and a half years of the tribulation, which is equal to 1260 days. Then we read about the ruling angel in our last verses. And a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought against Michael, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So verses 7 and 8 give us an incredible picture of angelic conflict, a picture of war in heaven. What? Are you kidding me? War in heaven? How can that be? Well, remember, even though Satan lost his position and his place in heaven when he first rebelled, he still has access to heaven, and he goes before God day and night to accuse the brethren, just as he did in his accusation of Job. The ruling angel is Michael, and one day Michael and the elect angels will defeat Satan and the fallen angels, and they will be permanently cast out of heaven. Now I want you to notice briefly the names given to him in verse 9, and so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So the idea of a dragon, he's fierce, he's a destroyer. A serpent, he's cunning, a deceiver. The devil, he's a slanderer, an accuser. And Satan, he's an adversary, an attacker. And it tells in verse 9 that he deceives the world. And, uh, you know, if our gospel is not understood, it's really because Satan has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. But he also tries to deceive believers and lead them astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And he accuses the brethren. He tries to attack, and so we must put on the full armor of God. We read about that in Ephesians 6. Well, what is our defense? 
Well, in verse 11, it says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives even to the death. The anchor of faith is the blood of Christ. The activity of hope is the word of our testimony. And the attitude of love for God is our commitment of life. Faith opposes devil as an accuser. Hope opposes the serpent as deceiver. And love opposes Satan as adversary. The believer's response to persecution, I may face temporary defeat, but through Christ there will be ultimate and eternal victory. And consequently, believers will be willing to lay down their life in their commitment to Christ. And then finally, in the last verse, we see the rejoicing in heaven. Therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. The rejoicing is partly praised because God's kingdom is coming. It's praised because God's will is being done. It's praised because the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. And it's praised because the saints are overcoming. They're overcoming by the, the accuser, by the blood of the lamb. They're overcoming the deceiver by the word of their testimony. And they're overcoming the adversary by their commitment to life. And there are some warnings here to earth as we look at this. The devil has come down to you. He's confined in space. He's come down knowing he only has a short time. to. He is confined in time. And it says he comes down having great wrath. This is thumos, not orge. It's a strong passion, but less weight than orge. It's emotional rather than rational anger. Now, when does this happen? He is finally and permanently cast out of heaven at the midpoint of the tribulation, leaving 1,260 days for the great tribulation. And what happens then for the remaining believers? Well, Satan launches an all-out campaign against Israel. When the dragon saw that he had been cast out to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. So, he knows that if he can wipe out Israel, he can thwart God's program. But according to verse 14, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle to bring her into the wilderness. And the people of Israel are taken in the wilderness, perhaps to the rocky fortress of Petra, south of the Dead Sea. We read about this in Matthew 24, 15 to 22. And there she is hidden and nourished the last half of the tribulation. She's preserved those 1260 days, those three and a half years, those time, times, and half a time spoken of in Daniel 7. What does a reference to the two wings of the great eagle mean? Well, certainly it is a work of God. It's pictured as being like an eagle, Exodus 19 or Deuteronomy 32. Perhaps it's a miraculous event like the food and water for Elijah at Kareth, or like the man and water for wanderers in the wilderness. Possibly it's some kind of an airlift. The two wings of a great eagle, picturing an airlift. Perhaps the airlift is by the country whose national symbol is the eagle. We don't know. 
but I sure wish it would be. I wish there would be a a revival in this country. It seems to be breaking out in many places across this country and around the world here at the end times. I would hope and pray that there would be a major revival here in the United States. In verse 15 and 16, Satan's murderous attack, pictured as a flood, will be countered by God's miraculous preservation, pictured as an earthquake. And then finally, in verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Satan, further enraged, turns back to part his wrath on those Jews who did not flee. Specifically, and all the believing Jews, on the 144,000 witnesses, and all other completed Jews who make up this remnant. Let me wrap this up with some practical lessons. Number one, Israel is fighting for her existence as a nation right now. Most Palestinians and Arabs have vowed to drive Israel into the sea. They do not want peace with Israel. They want to destroy Israel. They will not settle for the West Bank or the Golan Heights or the Gaza Strip. They consider all of Israel to be occupied territory, and they want it all. Satan wants Israel destroyed. Satan gladly promotes a legacy of hatred against Israel. Like the prophets of old, we must warn Israel of the coming travail. We must support Israel as she experiences the birth pangs of this coming tribulation. And we must comfort Israel with the message of hope in Jesus the Messiah. We ought to be concerned for Israel. We ought to pray for Israel. Pray for her physical safety. Pray for her spiritual awakening. Second, there's a cosmic conflict taking place at this very moment. We are in the midst of a spiritual battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, spiritual forces of darkness. And Christ wants mankind to have life and have it abundantly, but Satan wants to steal and kill and destroy. Satan is blinding the minds of unbelievers lest they see the light of the gospel and trust in Christ. Have you seen the light? Have you placed your faith in Christ? Satan is also leading astray the mind of believers lest they remain devoted to Christ. Are you remaining devoted? Well, that brings us to number three. You can be victorious. Satan has a plan for your defeat, a strategy for your defeat. He wants to steal your love, kill your hope, destroy your faith. His method is deceit. His target is the mind. God has made victory over Satan a possibility. But in each of our own lives, we must make that victory over Satan a reality. How? Well, three weapons, three weapons were revealed in this passage. The anchor is the blood of Christ. We must exercise faith, an exercise of faith to overcome his accusations. And then there's the activity, the word of God, an expression of hope to overcome deceit. And then there's an attitude of living for Christ, an experience of love to overcome fear. We should be willing to live for Christ, and if we have to, willing to die for Christ. Never doubting in the darkness what God has shown us in the light. Loving God more than life. Trusting God in spite of circumstances. Convinced that God has an incredibly wonderful plan for our eternity. 
Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So I ask, where do you stand? What is your destiny? There's a spiritual battle taking place, a battle between good and evil. But it's far more than that. It's a battle between God and Satan. Jesus is going to win this battle. Are you on the winning side? (coughs) Excuse me. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing is your fortress. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, are you afraid? Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Are you on the winning side? Well, that's a wrap on the 12th chapter of Revelation. I am honored that you're part of my listening family. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. I look forward to meeting with you each week as we seek to discover the meaning of the book of Revelation. I wish you a great week and God's blessings. Thank you for joining me in this passionate quest for wisdom from above.